Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of the Living Open podcast. This week's episode is on slow creative magic and you're still an artist even if you aren't making anything right now with Mina Hebert. Mina uses she her pronouns. She's an art therapist who believes in the power of making art with intention, connection, and the spirit of play. Her main method of creative practice is garment sewing through which she explores expression, color, and her body. She lives on the unceded traditional and ancestral territories of the Lekwungen, Songhees, and Eskrimalt peoples, also known as Victoria, B.C. Content warning for this episode is some body stuff, body image things. Um, And let me tell you what we talked about. We talked about Mina's journey with art and creativity and healing, making art but not feeling like an artist, slash feeling like an artist, (laughs) untangling the idea of only being an artist if you're producing something, not just if you're experiencing the identity of artist, queerness and art making, giving our own meaning to our art, permission to play and make mistakes and make a mess and use your nice supplies, the nice fabric, the nice pastels that you've been saving, Mina's journey with working with textiles, the transformation her sewing practice has gone through, making garments as a political statement, slow creative magic, and being open to being touched by what's happening around us. I loved re-listening to this episode, and I think I'm sharing and recording a lot of shows right now and writing a lot (laughs) of things that are about creativity because that is just what's feeling really present and life-giving and also healing but not even in a very you know like I feel like that's not the center of it the center is actually just like aliveness and joy and experiencing making art and feeling good um so it feels really nice to have these conversations about creativity and to write about creativity and re-listening to this episode with Mina I mentioned how I was working on my first quilt and it's so nice um as I was editing to be like, oh my gosh, that was a couple months ago, a month or two ago, and now my quilt is done. Now my quilt is done, my first quilt is done, I'm working on a second quilt and a bunch of other things, like some quilted potholders for my grandma for Christmas, because she needs some (laughs) potholders. She doesn't listen to this, so it's okay. Um, But yeah, I think it, um, I think there's such magic to working with textiles and fabric and it's slow and it's beautiful and it's ancestral and it was really fun to talk to Mina about that and it's about a lot more than working with textiles as well, as you can hear from all the things I just said. So on that note, I wanted to read an excerpt from the latest Joy Notes, which is my substack. Um, It's called The Next Thing Leads to the Next Thing. and. It's on in-process creative lessons. This piece is behind um, the paywall. Paid subscribers get two pieces of writing a month. Um, So I'm just going to read the excerpt that was sent to everyone. 
and I would love to invite you to subscribe to join notes at the link in the description if you are not a subscriber already there is a free seven-day trial you can explore some of the paid writings there um, and you can also support some creative writing you can support my writing so this is called the next thing leads to the next thing on in process creative lessons I am so interested by the way things can change by the way we see them when I took a painting and drawing class last fall, I was really surprised by how I was starting to see everything around me in such different ways. A tree is still beautiful, but also a series of lines, a series of light and shadow across the bark that are giving it life, giving it shape, depth. My fingers all fall were really itching to play with my new drawing pencils and to make something 2D come alive on the page by coloring in the late afternoon sun dancing across the bark and filling in the shadow on the underside of a branch and now that i'm writing a novel and dipping my toes back into fiction like i haven't since i was a kid i find myself really reading novels in new ways i'm noticing why the dialogue in a scene is really hitting me i'm swooning over the pacing the well-placed metaphor the well-done shift from internal world to setting to dialogue and just really noticing why i love what i love and what really resonates the chapters are breaking apart into craft without losing their beauty and i find inspiration and i learn how to write more of how i desire to write in this new seeing the seeing can be a spark i'm really grateful for creative play and all the ways i have allowed myself to just enjoy the magic to make a mess to not expect anything to be anything but creative expression a la this episode <laughs> and also what feels true is that the next thing leads to the next thing so i will leave it there um check out the link in the description if you want to read the rest and get into those in process creative lessons um and i also wanted to share that i am hosting one virtual breathwork class group gathering over zoom this year um, and it's solstice breathwork for grief i hosted this last year and i think it was quite meaningful for people it was really meaningful for me so i felt called to offer it again it'll be just before the darkest night of the year the solstice during the holiday season and we'll be doing breathwork journaling some optional sharing and it's really intended to support anyone who is working with grief at this time for the full spectrum of collective to personal. Um, I think as heavy as it can feel to hold grief, we also come more alive in it. We get to touch our hearts, our shared humanness, ourselves, and this breathwork group is not to release the grief necessarily, but to really hold it, to feel it, to tend to it, to know it. Um, and to know ourselves more more fully and deeply in that so if you feel like joining it's just $15 and you'll get the recording as well um, I'm really not sure how often I'll be doing breathwork groups in the future um, this is one of very few groups I did I want to say it's like the only group I've done all year I'm not sure if that's actually true but it's been a rare occurrence so um, not to say that to create a weird false scarcity, but um, just to, yeah, to share the process and where I'm at. 
So that link's in the description too. Come join us if you're wanting to be held in your grief and to hold grief at this time. And with that, please enjoy this conversation with Mina Hebert. I really loved it and I hope you do too. I always like to start the show by hearing about your journey and I would love to hear about your journey with art and creativity and healing and all the things, whatever you want to share and how it's brought you to this moment and the work that you do. Hmm. Yeah, I knew you were going to start with that question. (laughs) And I was thinking about the idea of a journey for myself and I feel like it started when I was a kid, I guess, my journey with creativity. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I grew up making birthday cards for all my friends, and that felt like a really, like, tender way to make art for people. I love making crafts. My mom did lots of photography and creative memory, like scrapbooking. So Mm -hmm. um, I feel that most of the art I was making it with my family was really about relationship, which I think is a nice sort of parallel to the work that I do now in art therapy um, and the idea of making art in relationship. But yeah, I spent a lot of mm, my youth making things, but not really feeling like an artist. It wasn't until Mm -hmm. I went to university and in university, I was learning about like counseling and I was doing child and youth care and working with kids and learning about kind of the systems in which we live in. And meanwhile, I was taking all of my electives in like art education classes and pottery and painting and film analysis and art history. So while I was learning about counseling techniques, I was also really passionate about art. And I didn't really see how those two connected. I was in my education program, kind of feeling a little lost and not really sure where I wanted to go with it and not really feeling like I had a niche. And after I graduated, I was working in a transition house with women and children leaving abusive relationships. And when I was there, I was making art with the kids every day. And I just noticed how impactful the art seemed to be with these kiddos, like giving them ways to talk about or not talk about what they're feeling or what they experience or just giving them a chance to have fun and play. It was kind of holding it all. And I was really interested about the way that these kids were using the art. And um, I ended up looking into art therapy and Mm -hmm. I went to, yeah, just another step of education and learning about how we can use art to both enrich our lives and fill it with joy and play and creativity and the like kind of building of identity that can come with art making as well as it giving us space to express or process maybe the the more challenging parts of our lives so yeah and and meanwhile I've been kind of doing my own creative processes and and looking at how I use art in my own life as a person. So I don't, (laughs) that's kind of a a bit of a history or my journey with becoming an art therapist, but also learning personally how art can be. So yeah, just like, I feel like art can impact all parts of my life and other people's lives too, if they, if they want to use it that way. 
Hello, cat. What's your cat's name? This is Chai Chai, like the tea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's a very good baby. She's decided she wants to be quite involved. So <laughs> I'll just put her on my lap and see if she wants to hang out. Looks like she does. I <laughs> Sorry for the interruption. It's <laughs> okay. I love it when cats join on Zoom. Yeah, Chai Chai loves to join. She's very chirpy too. So she'll probably chat um, at some point. <laughs> I have a really grumpy old cat who does not like to join on Zoom. And I wish she would. <laughs> her name is Hip. But oh, that's it, cute. She's upstairs sleeping. Oh, well, I love that for Pip. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thank you for sharing about a little bit about your story. I think I was. Um, a little bit struck by what you said about like you're making art but not feeling like an artist and I'm like yeah that that resonates I'm like just starting to embody the word writer and I think being a writer is being an artist and I also love to do all kinds of other creative things and I'm making my first quilt and all of that but I'm like an artist not me um and I know I'm not the only person who feels that way. So I guess I'm wondering, like, how do you feel like an artist? What is the, I don't know, what's that like for you? What, um, yeah. That is, yeah, I think about this a lot. And I think part of this, this kind of common feeling of not being an artist is sort of in response to the way that we look at art and view it as a skill that you have to kind of, learn and perfect and not really seeing it as something that's inherent in all people. I was, I think I saw this online and it's talking about like, yeah, people have been making art as long as we've been people. And it's only recently that we've started seeing it as something that you have to kind of adopt and then be good at. So I think a lot of us have feelings about, you know, I, I've never, Personally, I've never been able to draw and I, that's just not a skill I had. So I've never felt like I was an artist because I was like, well, I can't draw or I can't recreate something that looks like it does in reality. So therefore I'm not an artist or I like writing songs, but I worry that I don't have anything to say. So I can't be a songwriter. Um, And I think that really just comes from people feeling like they've been told or people being told that they need to make art in the really small kind of confines of what we view art to be instead of just creativity and something that comes <clears throat> with being human. So <laughs> I think that, you know, there's this, um, I'd have to look it up, but there's this comic that I really like. And is this kind of this look at what art is. And this person is saying that art, he views art as, um, anything that's like outside of surviving. And mm. so it's, like, you know, we, we need to survive by eating food and drinking water and being safe. And then everything else that's extra that is just done for like pleasure or aesthetics or just to express like, that's all art. So like making a face at someone or, you know, like having a joke or writing something down to remember it later, that is all could be viewed as a form of art. So I like to think that we're all artists kind of creating our our lives and our realities around ourselves. That just feels so true. <laughs> I'm, 
I just finished the taking this like book writing class and it was so lovely. And in one of the co-writing sessions, we were all like checking in about how the writing is going, what's going on for us. And we were all sort of joking, but this one person was like, I didn't write really, but I did like go on a walk and get coffee and like going on a walk and getting coffee is writing. And we were like, yeah, petting your cat is writing. (laughs) All these things are writing. And it's funny, but I'm also like, I do think it's true. Like, it's not literally putting pen on paper, but it's like living the things you're going to write about. It's paying attention. It's presence. Like, all those things feed writing. They're art. They're also things that make life feel alive and worth living, which I think is also beautiful and art and artistic and important and worth valuing and putting attention towards. Yeah. And I think when we give ourselves lots of time to practice that creating with intention or being inspired by what is around us. Maybe we can get a little more comfortable with the identity of artists. Or I think that the, the idea of saying like, I am an artist with a capital A can Mm -hmm. be daunting for people because it's sort of connected to productivity in a way too. Like I think Mm -hmm. that, that, yeah. How do we, untangle the idea of you can only be an artist if you're producing something not just if you're experiencing yeah I'm thinking of the theater and how people on the stage are the actors and the people in the audience are the art or the are the audience but like is the is it that clear of a distinction all the time for art maybe going and like consuming art in a gallery is an important process for you in your own creative journey and like gives you inspiration and you go on to think about art and that makes you an artist too, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. I think there's something there about like deciding for yourself, like no one's going to make you an artist or tell you that you're an artist, but you literally everyone can do that for themselves. And it's about connecting with that for you. And Um, I heard this quote one time that being a writer is about feeling compelled to write. Um, It's not actually about writing. And I think I really like that as well, because like so many of us feel that and it's not tied towards productivity. It's tied towards a feeling or way of connecting with the world or what we're orienting towards um, and less about like what we're producing, how often we're sitting down to make art. how we can like compare ourselves in weird ways to other people who are making more art or art more often or like that kind of stuff. Yeah. I almost, and I'm I'm thinking about how the identity of artists, does it only exist when you're making art or like, I I love to sew my own clothes, but I've gone through several periods of not making anything. So in those times when I'm not making something, am I not a sewist anymore? Or just because I'm not making something I'm still thinking about it every day. So if I'm thinking about it and looking at fabric and sitting on my iPad and drawing about it or just dreaming about it when I'm sleeping, does that, even though I'm not making it, like, am I still a sewist? What if I, what if I have to move and I don't have space, you know, like just thinking about how identity is more than what we're creating or yeah, if something happens to us and we can't create anymore, does that mean we're not artists or writers or, yeah. Yeah, totally. 
that makes me think about how you know people are always talking about how queer being queer is an identity and it's not like like you can be single and be queer you can be in a relationship that other people perceive as straight and still be queer it's not something that you do it's something that you are um and how that applies here too Mm, yeah I love that I feel like I have been thinking about my own relationship to the idea of being queer and I'm in a straight passing relationship and so the idea that I'm still queer even though you know what I'm doing right now isn't in like a queer relationship but it still counts or like even though I'm not making things I'm still an artist or mm-hmm. if I'm not writing I'm still a writer I love that yeah I love it too <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess I'm wondering like how um like how queerness is part of your art at all or is it? Like how do you do you relate that to your art at all? Is that part of your creativity? That yeah, I feel like my queerness is I've always had a little bit of a kind of cue questioning sort of thing happening in my brain and like also a desire to not take up space. So I'm an able-bodied white woman, cis woman, and I have this feeling that I don't want to take up space in the community if I am in a relationship with a man. And so, yeah, I think that it's tied to maybe a feeling that I've always been told I'm also a bit too much. Like Mm -hmm. I've always been a very talkative person. And I think I've got a lot of feedback in my childhood about being quiet and taking up less space. So I think I have some things around taking up space to begin with, but I think it relates to my art in that my art allows me to take up as much space as I want and be loud and make big or small, loud, like colorful pieces or dress in a certain way that allows me to express myself or um, yeah, playing with fabric and shape and drape and feeling really authentic in the way that I can dress and take up space visually as well. So Mm -hmm. I think my art allows me to feel really authentic. And even if I don't have necessarily words for that authenticity, I know that I can feel it in my body when I'm making art or wearing my art. So yeah, I don't, I feel like the part of me that feels queer hasn't quite found the right word for how I feel, but I have found ways of feeling it regardless through my art. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. And I can relate so much to that too muchness. I have that deep inside me as well. And I think for me, it's similar that like my art and my writing is a space where that's not really a question or a factor like I'm not thinking about if what I'm making is too much I'm just doing it and embodying it and my body's involved and my feelings are here and it's just like a process where that is far from my mind um and that feels really good yeah and how do we like how can we feel authentic and you know know it's for us as well and like knowing that the way that we present and the art we make may be seen by others and then knowing, but really it's for ourselves. That's something about art therapy that I love. Um, The idea that the art we make can't really be interpreted by 
an art therapy. You know, this is actually kind of a, some art therapists think that they can interpret people's art and like get messages from it. But I, I'm from the school of thought that like, it's about the person making the art gets to decide what it means. So when it comes to ourselves and our identities, you know, we're the ones who decide what it means to wear a certain thing or write a sentence. We are the ones giving it meaning. Yeah. I think the idea that we can make our own meaning is a really empowering one to me. And what you're saying reminds me of working with the dream world and how there are all kinds of external sources that will be thrilled to interpret your dream for you, right? And every symbol in it. But I think what is most powerful is like making our own meaning and personal symbology and personal myth-making and like, what does this feel like for me? What does this mean to me? Um, And that's how it becomes personal and to me, healing also. Mm -hmm, Totally. I did some dream work in my school and that was what we talked about a lot is it doesn't matter what I think a key means, but if a key shows up in your dream, like we're going to explore what you associate with keys or what kind of keys Mm -hmm. have you had in your life or what, or even, you know, taking into account what keys might mean in the culture you grew up in, like that, that can be informing, but then there's also a personal meaning layered onto that. Um, When I was getting my education in art therapy, we do our own process as clients in art therapy and we would meet once a week and make art and then be in our smaller groups and kind of go through a therapeutic process. And the first semester of my training, I made an Oracle deck Mm. and I was really interested in the idea of finding meaning within my own art Mm -hmm. and making these cards spontaneously without thinking about meaning or what they could be representing, but then processing them afterwards and finding the meaning almost like a Rorschach sort of Mm. test, but within my own art. And that has really shaped the way that I practice art therapy and collaborate and look at my own art as something that can speak back to me. Mm. And the meaning may change depending on how I am, but it's really just illustrating the things that are happening in my thoughts. And when I look at something, it can tell me how I'm doing you know, like it's, it's kind of, a yeah, it's almost like tarot, but it's within your own art and what you've made with your hands and mind. I get really excited about it. Well, I think that's so much more helpful and so much more interesting. Like I don't actually want someone else to be able to tell me what my art's about or want someone to tell me what a key is in my dream and provide this like math equation for like figuring this stuff out. Like it's, it's non-linear it's messy like it's supposed to be I to me anyways I feel like that's how it's supposed to be and not have these like perfect clear-cut answers that are like mean the same thing to everybody or like one thing is true I'm so much more interested in spaces where multiple things are true where meaning is changing and fluid and decided personally and intuitively and that's mm-hmm. where I want to play and hang out. <laughs> but it's hard because sometimes it feels like a lot more work. You know, sometimes I, I want to open the dream book and tell them what my dream means instead of having to untangle it myself and do all the the self-reflecting. I think sometimes it's it's tempting to think that it would be easier if someone could just explain it. To me. <sighs> yeah. That's so real. I think my religious trauma and my background in evangelical Christianity is just like 
absolutely not. (laughs) I will not ask a book to tell me what is true. Um, But that's just, that's just me. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot more fun. I think to be in the messy fluid, like let's tangle this out together. Mm -hmm. Let's sit over tea for an hour and talk about what your Mm -hmm. dream means and what it might mean. You know, if you have the same dream tomorrow, it might mean something else because you're feeling differently. Yeah. It's like in, in the era where you couldn't look things up on like Google right away. Like you could like dream and brainstorm and like think about things so much. Um, I don't know, more fluidly because the answers aren't all like at our little fingertips. <laughs> yeah. I think about how um, sometimes I'm at a restaurant and I can't decide what to choose I have a lot of like indecision issues sometimes and I really agonize over what meal to get and I have this little trick that I do where I choose two and I flip a coin and the coin like decides for me but I gauge my own emotional reaction so that's that's the Mm -hmm. trick is that I see how I feel about it telling me what I have to eat and if I'm relieved then I'm like yep that's what I really wanted and if I am fiery and be like no that's not what I want then it's it's communicating that data to me. And I'm like, okay, now I can, now I know what I want. I almost think about the dream journal being a tool like that, like a starting off place of telling me what my dream means. And if I agree and I'm like, yeah, that does feel really true to me. Mm -hmm. Then maybe that's some information. And if it tells me my dream about a key means this, then I can. And if I, my reaction is no, it doesn't. That's not what keys mean. Then that's the jumping off point there can use emotional kind of compass to guide our way. Yeah. I think it, when you're saying that it sounds like the key (laughs) to me and that (laughs) is like, (laughs) is trusting your own impulse and not being like, Oh, I'm going to override this. No, because I see this other thing outside of me. So like being able to have both of those things is like, magic I've done the key trick or the uh the coin flip trick before too and it really does work (laughs) Mm. yeah and I think some folks have a hard time checking in with themselves and and listening and hearing I think it can be hard to Mm. to just know how we're feeling or what we want I think that is something I've yeah I've seen with people of knowing like I don't know what I want but we sometimes need that jumping off point to kind of just give us a direction, especially with art making too. A lot of folks I work with don't know where to start because we have all those preconceived ideas about what art is. So having something like a directive or, you know, we're going to start with like a squiggle or we're going to wreck the piece of paper first and then make art kind of frees up folks to know what direction they want to go into and also have permission to make messes or explore or not know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I think that permission is so powerful and is the reason that I feel like I've been able to explore making different kinds of art is because I'm like have learned that I'm able to just like play and be curious and be bad in quotes about something that it doesn't have to be um like it looks like it should go in a museum that it can just be fun and personal and playful and I think we need that permission. I need that permission. (laughs) Yeah. And permission to use, to use things too. Like I'm thinking 
about my dad who had some oil pastels in high school and he saved them and saved them and saved them. And then he eventually gave them to my sister, who was kind of the artist of the family when we were growing up and she never used them. And I was thinking these are meant to be used. And I think a lot of us have yeah, that fear that we don't want to waste the materials and we don't want to make mistakes or make something that's bad or yeah, like you said, quote unquote, bad or ugly, like, but you know, these materials are designed to be used and that's what we have them for. And we've already gone through the process of acquiring them or making them. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And I think there's a lot of kind of environmental issues with the way that we kind of make a lot of art supplies. But anyways, aside from the fact that, you know, we can be using recycled materials more if the pastels are already made, they're here, they've been created. Let's use them to make art instead of worrying about making good art. Let's just make art in general. Yes. Yeah. Well, with that, I would love to hear a little bit more about making clothes and working with fabrics and what you've learned from that and what you love about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I started sewing when I was a child, making little pillows and things by hand. And I think the first thing I ever made on a machine was a pair of pajama pants. And I got really first thing I think I ever sewed with my grandma when I was a kid. And they were like these poopy little pants with clouds on them. And I was obsessed with them. I'm sorry, they like flannelette or some probably flannel or they were like silky. I was really into silky textures. It was the best. (laughs) I love silky textures. I still am drawn to silky things because I think when I was a kid, I had like a little lots of kids have sort of a transitional object, something to kind of support them from going from the idea that I'm connected to my grown up person, whoever's caring Mm -hmm. for me. We kind of go through this. psychological kind of de-pairing and when we realize we're our own person and my a lot of times people have like a teddy bear or something but mine was like a silky night dress from my mom that I would like hold and suck my thumb and rub and it was so silky and I still am so drawn when I'm at the fabric store I'm just like touching everything and feeling the fabrics and I'm really drawn to silky shiny things so Mm -hmm. I was like that too I think we would have got along in our matching silky pajama pants. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, and today my sewing practice has gone through quite a transformation too, because when I started as a teen, I was really rebellious and I didn't want to learn anything about the rules of sewing, quote unquote rules. Um, I completely worked with like tricky kind of slippery stretchy fabrics and improvised and made my own bathing suit with no pattern and that was kind of what I loved I loved this feeling of being rebellious and Mm -hmm. just making exactly what I wanted to and it's been really interesting to notice my own thought process now a decade later making clothes and taking a lot of um like pleasure and pride out of finishing things and hemming things and Mm -hmm. following directions I still love to self-draft um the clothes I'm wearing right now were pretty much self-drafted but yeah seeing how my brain has developed and gone from that sort of rebellious teenage developmental stage to sort of like this yeah wanting to follow rules or make things well and knowing that I want something to last and seeing the stage of 
my brain right now. It's been really interesting as like a self-reflective tool. Um, but yeah, sewing has just been, I get, so I'm adjusting my chair because I get all excited when I start talking about sewing. <laughs> <laughs> it's very um, exciting. <laughs> yeah. What do you What do you want to talk about? I I love fabric. We could talk about sourcing fabric or sewing and my body and yeah. What What direction do you want to go in first? So I would love to talk about sewing and your body. And also, mm-hmm. I think there's something here about. I think I'm curious. Like, what is it about fabric and working with fabric and having this as a medium for your artistic expression that you love I think when you talked about your own rebellion I was like that's so interesting because I feel like my rebellion (laughs) was about um rejecting all things feminine and now my parents and people in my family are like so shocked when I'm talking about uh, being really into cooking or like how I'm making a quilt and like wanting to use my grandma's sewing machine and all that stuff and I'm like guys, I came out to you as a lesbian. Now I can do whatever I want. Okay. But (laughs) um, yeah, I'm curious about, because fabrics have this whole, like in my family ancestral lineage, they have this whole connection to like domestic labor and women and femmes. And that was like a lot of questions, but I don't know, wherever you want to go from there. (laughs) Yeah. What comes to mind is when I was a kid, my mom hemmed all of my pants And I think this was because I grew up as a fat child and a lot of the pants that I would get would fit my waist, but they'd be way too long for me. So I have this memory of, of sort of shame around that, that my mom had to hem all my pants and they're really clearly hemmed by, you know, not a professional seamstress or anything. So I think what that is making me think of, or like consider is that sewing from a young age has been a way for me to adjust clothing to really fit my body. And while that used to have a lot of shame associated to it, now it's flipped and is really freeing because as a fat plus size person, it can be hard to find clothes and find clothes, not just that fit, but also feel good or represent how I want to look or kind of speak to my sensibilities. So clothing myself has become sort of a radical act of showing my body a lot of love and care and like Mm -hmm. treating it to the things that it's always wanted. Um, And at the same time, giving myself, yeah, sort of a, the gift of objectivity, you know, and when we're sewing, we have to take measurements and I I've measured my body hundreds of times and Well, I think that used to be really triggering for me to measure my body and see the numbers associated with the shape and size of my body. Now it's become quite an objective, like, this is just the truth. This is what my body, this is how much space my body takes up. And there's not a positive or negative associated with it. It's not like there's a judgment. It's just that I need this information to make these gifts for myself. So it's given me the the gift of looking at my body with neutrality and just kind of like mm. an acceptance. And I get to give it, like I said, these pretty little gifts of, mm. of linen and fuzzy fabric and things that feel really good. And I have lots of um, 
I'm realizing I have some sensory needs when it comes to things. So I get to choose how I put tags in my clothes or if I put tags in, or if something feels a little tight, I can go in and fix that and make sure that each garment feels really good and not itchy or, or stimulating in a way that I don't really have control over with store-bought things. That's <laughs> that feels so beautiful to hear you talk about like giving your body things that are comfortable and cozy and feel good and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that that's like a worthy thing to do and something that you deserve that we all do. Yeah. And I think it makes me have a lot of, of um, pride in knowing that I have this skill, especially a skill that's it's weird in our society because we I do get a lot of compliments or if I say I made something, people are like, oh, you made that by hand. <laughs> and I kind of want to say to people, I'm like, someone made your clothes by hand. Like all, mm-hmm. all garments are made by hand by someone, but we just tend to, when it's a hobby, we tend to kind of like boost it up on a pedestal and kind of make it really special. Um, whereas a lot of the people who are sewing our garments are you know, that labor isn't really viewed as, as like craftsmanship or, or art. So I kind of like looking at um, making my own clothes as a way to sort of show that this is a skill and that people should be paid fairly and equitably. And a lot of the people who are making our clothes are people who are racialized or, you know, living in parts of the world that we are basically oppressing. <laughs> Anyways, so it yeah. it's a big I think that making garments can be like a political statement as well and drawing attention to who makes our clothes and Mm -hmm. how do we give that that practice the respect and the pay that it deserves. So yeah, looking at it as like a part of the system of, of the economy and yeah, it's, there's a lot in there. Yeah. There's so much in there. That makes me think about my own family history with sewing and how, um, my grandma and her mom, who was, she always says was an amazing sewer and would hand sew when she was five years old and it looked like it was from a machine, but they all sewed out of necessity, right? Like they were poor. They sewed their own underwear. They sewed literally everything that they wore because they couldn't buy clothes. Um, and how it's sort of, I don't, I don't know, it's like circled around in some way where, like we buy clothes for really cheaply out of necessity because we're all, ex- not all of us, but many of us are exploited under capitalism and don't have money or time to be able to like sew by hand. And it's like gone from being an act of necessity to like something that has to be done like intentionally with care because we've outsourced that labor to these other countries you're talking about with where we oppress those people instead. And yeah, I don't know what the point of that is, but it's making me think about that and how my grandma also worked in a factory sewing here a long time ago and made like 18 cents an hour. And yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, like you said, it's also associated with femininity and mm-hmm. how ca- like acts of care and domesticity have been undervalued in society as well. And mm-hmm. I think about the way that I like to engage with the, you know, the ready to wear kind of fashion industry is, is acknowledging, yeah, like you said, can't afford to buy a lot of the sustainable sort of ethical goods because they're so expensive. And really they, 
clothing should be expensive because it's made with skill, but at the same time, like all the things you just said, and the way I like to engage with it is making my own clothes when I can, acknowledging where the fabric I buy from comes or from where it comes, trying to make garments out of recycled or like thrifted fabric. I love to make things out of bed sheets and kind of fabric where I can. Um, And then also learning to mend and take care of the things that I do buy within the system. And I think, yeah, I, I heard a quote somewhere, someone saying, you know, we could, we could be more materialistic in that maybe we need to care for the material goods we have so much and we are so obsessed with them that we like keep good care of them and and mend when we can and you know just really cherish them in a way that's stepping outside the sort of consuming and um like wasting it or throwing it away and instead just be materialistic in the way that we have something and want to keep it forever so we take care of it I love that. Yeah. I, it's, sorry, go on. You go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say it's a different way of looking at what materialistic even means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's some kind of balance there that I think I'm finding in myself that's like, um, it's okay to like things and feel comforted by things and want things that are beautiful and bring pleasure into my life. And then at what point, like, this is enough. Like I'm, I'm complete. I'm okay. It's not like compulsive consumption, but like what's intentional and what like really actually feels good and adds to my life, not takes away from it and makes me like too obsessed with having things and prioritizing those over the feelings they give me and relationships and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, totally. And I, and as someone who sews and makes their own clothes, I've really noticed how internalized, productivity and capitalism seep into my process of making my own clothes and that I will catch myself being like, I need this right now and I need more and I need another one of these and and like just giving myself this really long task list Mm -hmm. and expecting (laughs) things right now and that sort of instant gratification. So even looking at my own practice of making clothes, which is so slow, but reminding myself to take it even slower and try to only make things that I actually need that will fit in my wardrobe and not get caught up in mm-hmm. trends, especially when I'm sewing because I sew so slowly sometimes that by the time I make a trendy thing, it's the trend is already gone or <laughs> <laughs> not getting caught up in what I think I want, but trying to, yeah, look at like what is going to fit a need. What will I wear for years and mm-hmm. not make myself my own little capitalistic <laughs> cycle not yeah. seven and sometimes I, I fail and I make things and I don't wear them but that's you know that's part of it and, and yeah just balancing like the necessity and the creativity and yeah there's there's a lot of things to untangle there yeah I think what you're saying is just making me think of something I always try and return to is like I don't want to just the end goal feel, have the end goal feel good, right? Like just have the quilt or the piece of clothing, like feel really good at the end. I want the whole, the whole point to me is like the experience of getting there and letting it, letting myself enjoy the process and learn something about myself, about the process on the way. Like 
that's why I'm really doing it. But I totally relate to that. I literally have not even finished my first quilt. It's pinned and ironed on the floor behind me. And I'm already like, oh my God, I'm going to make like a hundred quilts and I'm going to make a quilt for every single person I know. And and I'm just like, (laughs) it's so silly, but whatever, I'm having fun. (laughs) Yeah. And that what you just touched on about making a quilt for everyone, you know, that's something I've gone through with my own sewing process too, is saying yes to people when they want me to sew for them and realizing that I really don't enjoy sewing for other people and I put it off and mm-hmm. I I just get really stressed about it so sewing has really helped me practice or kind of forced me to practice setting boundaries mm-hmm. with people and myself and um it'll be interesting I'd love to touch in with you a little later as you continue to sew because as someone who sews I get a lot of requests like can you make me one of those or can you fix these pants or and it it's yeah. really encouraged me to be very firm with the boundary and say no because that doesn't work for me in this sewing process or that that's not going to be helpful for me so I'm just going to say no mm. but yeah like sewing is boundaries yes. yeah yeah <laughs> sewing is boundaries it's a it's a real <laughs> there's a great oh. Instagram page called can you sew this for me and it's <laughs> it's people who sew and all the outlandish requests they get from people who just assume that since sewing And the process is so enjoyable. They assume that people would love to just like spend hours going for free for other people. I'm like, that's probably how my aunt feels. She is like the quilter sewer person of the family and she's amazing. And now I'm like, oh God, she's also the one who taught me how to make this quilt. So shout out to Aunt Ginger. She's not listening, but thank you. (laughs) Uh, Some people really do find the process enjoyable though and love, you know, that might be a part of their love language is making things for other people. And if Aunt Ginger gets a lot of joy, then all the power to her, but that's not how it works for me, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's okay. And how good to know that about yourself and be like, I love doing this thing. And actually it's for me and that's okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. It feels like a little act of defiance too, in a, in what maybe is seen as like that sort of feminine domestic, you know, like when people have those assumptions about like, what is a, is like a pink job or a blue, you know, when people start making these binaries and being like, oh, well, you are a woman who loves to sew. So you must love doing it for others. And that must be your way of nurturing and caring. And I'm like, no, it's not <laughs> It's not for me. I'm selfish. And I'm, I'm like, mm-hmm. that works for me. Yeah. It's how I nurture and care for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's lots of ways that I nurture and care for those around me. And I've just found that sewing isn't one of them. So yeah. we'll find another thing to do together. Well, thank you for that permission, because who knows where I'll end up on my scale of joy or not about sewing for other people. But Mm -hmm. I know it's feeling good and it feels so slow and fall and winter. I'm really into embroidery and I just love in the cozy season to to do embroidery. And yeah, quilting and sewing is feeling like that, too. Mm -hmm. As the temperature cools down, I start like looking over at my big bag of yarns and wools I'm like oh it's the time I'm a crocheter so I'm looking at yeah thinking about my project yeah well I'm excited for you the beginning of the the cold time (laughs) um and I would love to ask you the last question I always ask on this show are you you feel ready yeah cool um what does living open mean to you 
what comes up when you hear that? How does that feel? Hmm, living open. I imagine a sort of like heart expanding and opening. And one of my favorite feelings that I've been putting words to lately is the sparkle heart. Um, and there's an emoji that has spark, sparkly heart. And I, I love the idea of just, I think that I feel my heart sparkle when it's being touched by the things around me. So witnessing people be vulnerable or share something or watching a really great movie or having a big belly laugh with a friend. I get that feeling of like being more alive in that moment, kind of like my body's filled with bubbly water or something. And I think that sparkly heart is what I think of when I think of living open, like being open to being touched by what's happening around us on a heart level. I can picture the emoji exactly. And I love it. Can you tell people where they can find you, connect with you, all of the good things? Yep. Um, I'm on Instagram and my handle is what the moon made. So you can find me there if you want to see my sewing and my art. I've been really into this picture of glass gem corn and I've been like making corn color palettes based on all the ears of corn that was in the picture so Mm -hmm. if you're interested in like corny color palettes that's me I also have a website which is moonmadestudios.com and there I have information about upcoming groups and and things that's that are happening so yeah but I'm on Instagram what the moon made so give me a Give me a shout out, not a shout out. What am I saying? (laughs) Follow and we can talk about all things creative and sewing. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.